Lesson number three, the title is Enduring Temptation, and we'll be uh, getting right into that. As a matter of fact, we'll be looking at James chapter 1 and several verses in the book of James and, um, and unpacking those for us here uh, today. And we certainly want to welcome those that are joining us, tuning in, live streaming, or uh, wherever you're joining us in the world. We're so glad that you've decided to join us today. Uh, we want to remind you that there are free offers available for you to those that are in North American territories. Um, and uh, you want to just call into 916-457-6511. And, or you can uh, email us at csh at saccentral.org. And you want to call in or write in to request order number 21442. That's 21442 to receive your special offer. And uh, also, you, we want to encourage you to uh, write in uh, and maybe, maybe you have a question related to the, the lesson on that particular week, a particular day, or you have a comment you'd like to make, make and we can certainly uh, share those questions, try to answer them the best we can. And for those that are joining us here today as well, you know you can write in or call in and ask the question or comment and we can have you do that right here live. Uh, each, uh, each time we get together. So uh, we want to make sure that you're aware that you can ask questions and you can share your comments as well. Uh, also, we love to hear from you, uh, those who are viewing us. Send in your comments. Uh, let us know how things are going, how you enjoy the program. Always enjoy reading uh, comments and, uh, and thoughts from uh, those who are viewing us. So thank you so much for doing that. Well, here we are, James and you probably have your Bibles open. If not, turn with me to James chapter 1. And we're going to look at several verses here as we unpack the, uh, these very, this very important uh, topic, enduring temptation. Enduring temptation. You know, um, I'm not typically known for debating, but uh, when I was in high school, uh, sometimes I'd we have sleepovers with our friends, and I would uh, visit with uh, my particular friends. One particular friend uh, was not a, a believer in the uh, in creation. I actually believed in the teaching, the theory of evolution, and we uh, we got to dialoguing about that. Now I hadn't made a conscious decision to serve Jesus at that time, but uh, I knew we didn't come from goo and uh, end up in the zoo to what we are today. I knew that. Uh, we came from the hand of a, of a creator, an intelligent designer. So here we are. We're getting ready to sleep, and we, this very deep subject breaks out, and we're having this discussion about evolution and creation. And then the conversation took a bit of a turn, and uh, we started talking about uh, the nature of humanity and, and uh, who we are, our makeup. And I was using, I used the word temptation in the discussion. Have you ever been tempted, drawn away? We were discussing the problem of doing wrong. And, and so have you ever been tempted before? And my friend responded and, uh, well, at least he asked the question. He said, what is temptation? What is temptation? And for the first time, I recognized that, uh, that some folk don't know what it is because in our own natural state, uh, we just go along with the flow, go along with what naturally pulls us to, to this thing or to that thing, and we don't resist anything, and so therefore, we, we're not feeling, there's no, there's no temptation, is, is what I gather my friend was, was arriving at. The Oxford Dictionary asks, uh, answers the question, what is, definition, uh, what is temptation? This is the definition a desire to do something especially wrong or 
unwise. It's a desire to do something especially wrong or unwise. Now, contrary to my friend, the Christian life is filled with struggles, filled with challenges. We no longer just float with the current. As Christians, we're paddling upstream. Now, if you've ever been out here on the American River, or any river for that matter, and you, uh, you're uh, going with the current, it's pretty easy just to get in your boat and go downstream. Now, what happens if you reach a point where you don't want to be and you want to get back to where you need to be? Then you've got to start paddling upstream, and it's not that easy to do. You're going against the current uh, in, the, in, the, in the ocean. You're going against the tide. Sometimes there's even under, undercurrent that you've got to be careful of. And the Christian life is not one of going with the flow, but we're, we're paddling upstream because, of the, uh, because we're resisting the things that we didn't used to resist, that we just succumbed to, the things we just used to do. Now we're pressing onward and upward. We have a new set of principles, new goals, uh, these types of things. And it's not easy to do, admittedly not easy to paddle upstream, but by God's grace, we can endure. We can endure. When, uh, when I was living in the tropics uh, in northern Australia, up in Australia, the north is the tropics, the south is the four seasons, kind of reversed to what we experience here in the U.S. And uh, we lived in Darwin, and in the backyard, we grew a mango tree. And I wasn't a, a fond, I just didn't like, I wasn't fond of mangoes at all. These were the stringy mangoes, and they didn't look good, and I wasn't sure they would taste good either. One of the things that turned me off of mangoes as well was the fact that sometimes we'd go out in the yard to play before school or when we get home from school, and scattered all along the base of that, uh, the mango tree were mangoes that had fallen to the ground, and they'd been bitten into or half eaten. And that was because of the fruit bat. These were, and it's interesting, the fruit bat, they wouldn't pick the, the green mangoes they would pick the mangoes that were ripe and uh, they would mess them up. They'd take a bite of one and then they'd just, it'd just drop it on the ground and that one was contaminated so we couldn't use that one or some were half eaten or whatever, but we'd find out, find out that the, the fruit bat had gotten to the mangoes. It's an interesting and important lesson because typically the devil comes to not green Christians, those who, who, have no, uh, those who are not growing in their faith, but he comes to those who are growing in their faith, those that are maturing, ripe, ripening Christians. Uh, like the fruit bat is drawn to ripe fruit, the ripe mango, uh, the devil is drawn to those who are growing and he brings special temptations, special trials and special challenges to trip us up you see, and to cause us to come undone. So as Christians, we can expect that the devil is going to uh, harass us. We can expect that there are going to be trials, and we can expect that there's going to be temptations as well. Now, I know that's not good news. We're not starting out with good news here, but we're going to deal with some good news. Uh, let's, let's take a look at James chapter 1, verse 12. Notice how James starts out this discussion uh, with regard to enduring temptation temptation, enduring temptation. James chapter 1 and verse 12, James chapter 1 and verse 12, he says, blessed is the man, and we don't expect the next, next words, but here they are, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. He starts out by saying, blessed, and this is naturally an allusion to the what? 
the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount and he started his conversation with the word blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Blessed or happy are ye. Blessed, James says. Blessed or happy is the man who endures temptation. Blessed is that one who faces difficulties and trials. And then he says, blessed is the one who endures. Endures. That uh, word endures is different from the word patience that is typically used uh, for this word. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, for example, we're told that the patience, here is the patience of the saints. That word patience can probably be better translated perseverance, uh, from which we get the idea of endurance, you see. Perseverance. So the word, this word uh, endures, this word is different from patience, which suggests a passive submission. It's not that at all. This word endures emphasizes the active staying power that makes men and women triumphant over their temptations and trials. Just think about a marathon runner for just a moment. What are they doing? I've never seen, to be honest, I've never seen, and maybe you haven't either, a, a marathon runner with a pleasant look on their face. And, I mean, that's hard work. They are striving. What are they striving toward? The finish line, 26.2 miles, something like that. I can barely run a mile. So 26 miles, they're enduring. Think about a marathon runner when you, think of, when you read the word endure. Blessed are those who endure temptation. But in the Christian setting, we're not uh, running with a grim look on our face and we're not looking like we're about to kill over like the average marathon runner looks like, but uh, we're enduring by the grace of God. We overcome by the grace of God. And then the idea here is that the man or the woman is happy when they endure temptation. What is temptation? Anything that tests our faith, anything that tests our characters. That's really it. So it could even be sickness. It could be uh, a spell of, of uh, lack of resources, even poverty, <clears throat> maybe calamity, or maybe some enticement to sin. And that's what we typically think of a, as a temptation, enticement to sin. So let's go to Sunday's lesson. I'm going to run over there and take a look at the root of temptation. We might as well start there. Where does it begin? Where does temptation begin? Now, Jesus taught us a very special prayer to pray, did he, did he not? Among the requests mentioned in the Lord's Prayer, he teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. So this question or this prayer uh, has the flavor or the, this thought behind it that perhaps God entices us to sin. If we're asking God not to lead us into sin, is he the one that leads us into sin? Is God, does God tempt, does he entice us to sin? Does God, God does God uh, entice us to sin? Now, God does prove us or tests us, tests men and women. We think about Abraham. Abraham's faith was tested when God, he asked, uh, when God offered him to offer up his son, Isaac. And you can read about that in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. God proved Abraham is what the, the text says. And then Israel's faithfulness at the mount, at the foot of Mount Sinai was tested when God spoke the Ten Commandments. It was, he spoke them before they were written down. 
And you can read that in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 20. God said he declared the word uh, so that he would prove his people. So God does prove, he does test, tries his people, but does God lead his people into temptation? What does James say? James chapter 1 and verse 13, we're continuing with James' train of thought, talking about temptation. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So does God tempt us, entice us to sin? No, no, he does not. As a matter of fact, that was the, the first accusation that uh, Adam and Eve brought to God in the Garden of Eden. Uh, you remember that uh, God came after they had transgressed, they recognized something was wrong, and God, who normally met with them uh, at a particular part of the day, came to visit. And what did Adam and Eve do? They hid themselves, not from each other, but they hid from God. And God came and asked Adam, where is he? He didn't, wasn't asking that because he didn't know where Adam was, but he was asking him spiritually, Adam, where are you? What have you done? And what did Adam say? Well, it was that woman, you see, <clears throat> that you made. Uh, she's the one that gave me the fruit to eat. What was he saying? God, you're to blame. You're the one who made the woman. You're the one who put her here. In other words, you're the one who led me to this temptation, to this point, to sin. And then what did the woman do? She handed it off to the serpent, but ultimately to God, because she said, well, the serpent that you made led me into temptation. Here I ate the fruit, that's it. So both of them were accusing God of leading them into temptation, enticing, uh, God was enticing them to sin, which of course he doesn't do. So of course, naturally, we don't want to be blaming God. We don't want to be blaming God for the problems and the challenges that may come to us or the temptations. Now, when, we, when you pray, lead us not, when you've just prayed, uh, forgive, me my, forgive us our debts and uh, as I forgive those who are indebted to me, then we go on to pray, lead us not in temptation. It's just having just prayed that the guilt of sin might be removed, it's fitting that we might pray that we might not go back to that sin that we've asked God to forgive us from. Talking about the Lord's Prayer here. The prayer Jesus is teaching us to pray is akin to what the psalmist prayed in Psalm 19, verse 13. Listen to these words. He says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Keep them back from me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Is it okay to pray that temptations don't come? Well, sure, it's okay to pray that. Are they going to come? <laughs> yeah, they're going to come. They surely will. Um, we, it's okay to pray that temptations don't come because of the discomfort and trouble that temptation can bring or the danger of being overcome by that particular sin we're being drawn away to commit or the guilt and the grief that follows. So it's okay to pray that the Lord lead us not in tempta into temptation. Where does, James, well, where, yeah, where does James say that temptation begins? We're talking about the root of temptation. Let's take a look here. James chapter 1, verse 14. And I want to take a look at another verse over in Mark chapter 7. We'll take a look at that in just a moment. Uh, James chapter 1 and verse 14. Where does sin begin, or rather temptation begin? Temptation actually begins in the mind. Notice verse 14. Uh, let's jump back up to verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Verse 14. 
but each one is tempted when he is what? Drawn away, drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Now, Jesus talks about the same thing over in Mark chapter 7. If you want to run over there with me, Mark chapter 7 and verses 21 and 22. Notice what Jesus says here. Mark chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. And we can jump back up to verse 20, where Jesus says, And he said, when, uh, What comes out of a man that defiles a man? For from within, or out of the heart of men, or out of the mind of men, proceed the following things, evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evils, evil things come from within and defile a man. Interesting, isn't it? So where does temptation begin? Right there, in the mind. Temptation begins in the mind, from within, Jesus says. That means... That means we have a choice. That means we have a choice. That means no one can force us to sin. That's what it means too. Natural inclinations and desires get our attention often. I think we can agree to that. Uh, James here uses hunting and fishing terms to refer to the internal prompt, these internal promptings, these allurements, these temptations. So our own desires, our own cravings, they lure and entice us, is what he's saying. And when we give in to them, they finally hook and trap us. So he's using fishing and hunting uh, uh, terms. If you've probably been fishing before, and uh, you know how the game works. Maybe some of you have been hunting. I don't know. I've never been hunting before. That's just a little bit too aggressive for me. But I used to, I used to fish when I was a young boy. And uh, my first time fishing, uh, went, uh, went out with a neighbor friend. They invited me to go fishing. And they showed me how to you know, put the, the bait on, the, the hook, and how to cast the line. And it was a lot of fun. And uh, there we were fishing. And it was in a little, play, little creek called Buffalo Creek. When you fish... You're, you're casting the line, you're luring the fish in, and you want them to do what? You want them to bite on, to hook, and then you, you, know, you yank back, you've got, them, you've got the, the mouth hooked, and then you reel them in. And So James is referring to and using the same language here uh, that fishermen use, uh, that uh, sin entices us, our own desires, our cravings lure, and they entice us. And then when we give in to them, they finally hook us, you see. Every person has their own particular craving which arises from their own temperament and from their own experience. This fact, this fact doesn't deny that there's an external tempter and his minions that take full advantage of our weaknesses. Uh, but while they tempt us, can tempt us to sin, their temptations wouldn't have any power if it were not in us, any desires in us to respond to the inducements. Do you understand what I'm talking about? So the devil's only effective because he knows that there's endurements, enticements within us that he can, he can work on. If they weren't there, then his temptations would be absolutely powerless. <clears throat> there's a statement that I want to read uh, for us here, and I, we have a question. Ben has a question for us with regard to sin and temptation here, and we're going to come to you here in just a moment, Ben, once we're, uh, once we're ready. Uh, but here's a quotation for us from Messages to Young People, page 67. It's a very powerful statement. Notice uh, what the pen of inspiration says. 
She says, no man can be forced to transgress. His own consent must first be gained. That tells us we have a choice, right? His own consent must first be gained. The soul must purpose the sinful act before passion can dominate over reason or iniquity triumph over conscience. Temptation, however strong, is never an excuse for sin. Pretty, pretty powerful. So we can't say that God decreed my temptation or we can't say, as we have been known to say, the devil made me do it. You know, the devil can't make you do a thing. All he can do is tempt you, entice you. That's all he can do. But we must have, he must have our consent before we disobey and before we give in. We fall into temptation because of a desire to satisfy a particular craving that is in us that is contrary to the will of God. So a big question, Ben, you've got a question for us here. Yes, Pastor. Is it a sin to be tempted? Okay, and this is a good question because a lot of people get this issue mixed up, sin and temptation. The basic answer is no. Sin is not a temptation. Look at verse 14 and 15. Uh, James continues to unpack what happens when we're allured uh, or enticed by our own sin or enticed by a desire rather within us and what happens next. Look at uh, James 1, 14 and verse 15, 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, notice, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to what? Sin. So here we've got two separate issues. Temptation, temptation draws us to committing sin. And when uh, it goes on, it says, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so certainly sin is a deadly thing. Temptation is temptation to sin is not sin. Two different things entirely. Desire is not wrong. Desire is not wrong. God has given us powerful desires, including ambition temper, and uh, even sex and every basic disposition. But desire becomes wrong when it becomes or when it oversteps its bounds and seeks to gratify itself outside the will of God. Now, on Monday's lesson, we're going to unpack this more. So let's go to Monday's lesson. When sin conceives, let's take a look at this a little bit more. <clears throat> Desires are not wrong. They're not wrong. They only become wrong when it oversteps its bounds and seeks gratification outside the will of God. So temptation is not a sin, uh, but it's an enticement too. And if we choose to, if sin, uh, sin is conceived, what does James say? When desire has conceived, it gives, forth, uh, gives birth to sin. We're all surrounded every day with sights and with sounds that are appealing to the mind. It's through these emotional stimuli that unholy desires are presented to each one of our minds. As long as those desires are not gratified or fulfilled, then they are not wrong. It's only when the mind responds to the desire to nurture and to hold on to it that the temptation then turns into sin, just like that. So James' statement 
here in verse 15, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. He's comparing the act of sin to fertilization and conception is what he's doing. Just as a bee, for example, carries pollen with it to open blossoms to another to to, uh, to fertilize another flower, so each human heart is open to unholy thoughts and desires. Now, if these seeds are allowed to mingle with our carnal natures, which is something we're born with, if, they are, if the seeds are allowed to mingle with carnal, our carnal natures, they produce an inevitable harvest of sin. That's how it goes. Our only hope, though, is to put a guard before every avenue of the soul, to test everything that enters into the mind by way of these different avenues, through the, through the eyes, through the mouth, through what we hear, uh, what we touch. Hang on, there's five of them. I've, I've listed four. What's the fifth one? S- sound, sight, taste, smell. There it is, smell. And there are some very, very cool smells out there that draw us in, don't they? Oh, I tell you. I want to take a look at a couple of powerful promises here because we're talking about temptation starting in the mind, which means sin begins where? If we, if we uh, consent to the temptation, sin begins in the mind. Man, this, is, this is serious stuff. We can prevent an action from happening, we think. We can prevent an ha- action from happening, perhaps. But can we prevent a sin ha- happening, taking place in the mind? Well, no, we can't by ourselves, but notice these promises by God's grace. Someone has Philippians 2, verse 5. Who has Philippians 2, 5? Mike, thanks. Notice these. I'm going to read a couple of promises for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. This is a powerful promise and one that maybe you could put to memory. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above which you are able. But with the temptation, make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. So God has wonderful promises for us. And uh, he tells us that the temptation you might be enduring or going through is not, it's common to man. It's not the only thing. You're not the only one who's, who's faced that. You know, pretty much where a person has fallen, you, it's pretty much prefaced by the thought that I'm the only one going through this. I'm the only one dealing with this right now. No one understands, which makes way for going into the realm of committing the sin. But, but Paul challenges that thinking and says, no temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above which you are able. So that means God measures, God weighs it up before he allows it to come. God in his sovereignty, he he allows things. He doesn't make them happen, but he allows them. And uh, these things try our faith and our patience and grow us, you see. But will with the temptation make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it? I want to come back to that point a little bit later. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. Notice this. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not, they're not, uh, they're not, they're not stuff that you can hold on to, like swords and shields and guns. They're not carnal. But mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now notice bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Wow, that is powerful. So every thought can be brought into submission to the claims of Jesus Christ. Every thought, that is powerful. That's encouraging. Uh, Philippians 2, 5. Thanks, Mike. Philippians 2, verse 5. 
Let this spine be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we're encouraged here to have the mind of Jesus. Was Jesus tempted? Yes. Did Jesus sin? No. Where does sin begin? In the mind. We can have the mind of Jesus, who did no sin. Powerful. What a wonderful promise that is. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, tells us Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus was tempted like we were, like we are. And yet the Bible says that he overcame. And how did he overcome? Temptation. By the, by the word of God. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and our energetic cooperation with the Holy Spirit and obedience to God's word, by his grace, we can overcome. And that's wonderful news for us. Let's go to Tuesday's lesson. Every good and perfect gift. We're just following James' train of thought here. Every good and perfect gift. What's the best gift you've ever received? <clears throat> what's the best gift you've ever received? Whatever it is, it's not as good as this. It's not as good as this one right here, the one that God has offered us. Let's look at James chapter 1, verse 17. Now remember, he's talking about temptation. He's talking about sin. Now he talks about good gifts, contrasting uh, with temptation. There's temptation, uh, things that come from within that entice you to sin, and there's also the devil that brings temptation lures us to sin. But every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? Above. And comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. You know, our situations may change, our lives may change, we may change, our circumstances may change, but there's one person that never change, changes, and that is God, our Heavenly Father. He never changes. And, uh, and so here we have the assurance that God brings perfect gifts to us. God's goodness in this verse, is seen as the antithesis of temptation and lust, meaning that God doesn't give us gifts that will harm us, but that will benefit, benefit us. He doesn't send the problems that come from without or the temptations that come from within. Instead, He brings grace and He brings strength to aid us in the fight against temptation. So the question is, what is the gift? Look at verse 18. What is the gift? Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of God or the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Someone has Hebrews 2 verses 17 and 18 here. Okay, right here. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. We'll come to you in just a moment, uh, David. So what is the gift that God bestows upon us in the fight against temptation? What does he say? He says that we, by his own will, he brought us forth. What's another way of saying that? We were born again. He brought us forth. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So how do we, how do we overcome temptation? You know, if we're not born again, we're just going to go along with the crowd. We're going to go along with the flow. But with the Holy Spirit working in us, there is a power at work to help us resist that enticement to sin, isn't there? 
And that comes when we are born again, when we're uh, born from above. And the Word of God is what brings the new birth experience. Jesus brings that to us. Let's remember this. Let's remember this, that every time that we are tempted to do wrong, we are also tempted to do what is right. Two things going on. Every time we're tempted to do what is wrong, we're also tempted to do what is right. Because of Jesus' victory over temptation, he provides temptation to do what is right. And not only temptation to do what's right, but power to do it. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Thanks, David. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might, be, he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Thank you. So in Jesus' humanity, because he came like one of us, yes, he was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. And as a man, he suffered temptation. The Bible says he suffered. So if you're being tempted or tried, it does bring a degree of suffering. Jesus suffered being tempted. Why did he suffer being tempted? So that he is able to do what? Aid those or help those that are being tempted. <clears throat> so as surely as a person is being enticed to do the wrong thing, the Holy Spirit is enticing us to do the right thing. We, we come to this crossroads. We're either going to take that road or this road. We have a choice every time. And by the grace of God, with, the, with the, the miracle working power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, it brings power for victory over that temptation. We read earlier, there's no excuse to sin because every provision has been made for overcoming that sin. But it leads us to a question. Lust brings forth sin and sin brings forth death, we were told. So with such high stakes before us, why is it that we sometimes don't see more victory in the life? I mean, when we talk about sin bringing death, what type of death is that? That's not the natural death. Most all people will die, uh, except those who will be alive to see Jesus come back. It's not the first death. It's the second death. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, it talks about this second death. It, the reason it's called the second death is because the first death, everyone's going to be raised from that death. Isn't that right? Either you're raised in the resurrection of the just or the resurrection of the unjust, but everyone's going to be raised from the dead. But this particular death, the second death, no one's going to be raised. That's it. It's eternal. And so if sin brings the fruits of eternal death, why is it that we sometimes don't see more victory in the life? <clears throat> Perhaps it's for several reasons. Maybe one of them is that we don't or we lose the concept of the sinfulness of sin. We lose the concept of how sinful it is and how deadly it is. You know, the Old Testament uh, sanctuary and its services uh, were very impressive. But every day, blood was being spilled. Every day, innocent animals were, lives were being given up because of some indiscretion, some sin that a person had committed. And that was very unfortunate. Every time an animal was slain, it was a reminder of the, of the consequences of sin. And not only, is, not only should we be reminded of the consequences of sin, which cost the death of God's dear Son, but we should also be conscious of the fact that, uh, that uh, sin hurts and breaks God's heart. The, the, the cross is a, a revelation to our dull senses 
of the love that God has had for us from the very beginning, even when, uh, even before, or when, rather when sin uh, came about. So the cross is a picture of the love God has for us. So we need to be reminded that sin is deadly, but we also need to be reminded that God's love is powerful and, uh, and that he sent his son to die for us. Let's look at Wednesday's lesson, shall we? Slow to speak. <laughs> Slow to speak. How are we doing with that? Slow to speak. <clears throat> Notice the counsel continues in James chapter 1 and verse 19 and 20. Having talked about temptation and sin and that being born again, we don't have to we don't have to sin. We can be victorious. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Slow to speak, or swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Verse 20, for the wrath of man does not produce <laughs> the righteousness of God. Does not produce the righteousness of of God. So we're encouraged here to be swift to hear. And the idea here is though we are born by the word, it doesn't excuse us from continuing to listen to the word. Because we've come to Jesus and we've been saved by faith, through, by his grace, through faith by grace, doesn't mean we should stop now listening to his word. It's his word that brings transformation. It's his word that brings power. So we're admonished here to be swift to hear God's word. What, what should... Uh, we hear, and what we hear, we embrace and we hear with enthusiasm, you see. You remember uh, Jesus often said these words, He that has ears, let him hear. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, with regard to the, the Lamb's book of life and the mark of the beast issue, uh, the, uh, the angel says, He that has ears, let him hear. By the way, the, the, the seven churches of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, Every church is counseled. You have the, the rebuke. You have the, the admonition, the counsel. There are a couple of churches that didn't, didn't receive a rebuke. <clears throat> but you've got these things that uh, are very uh, common to each church. And Jesus comes to each church and he says at the end of the rebuke and admonition, he that has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So if we have ears, we're to hear. We're to listen to the Word of God. This admonition this admonition here in James chapter 1 also embraces the general suggestion that we should be more ready to hear than to speak. A lot of problems come when we open our mouth far too quicker, far too quicker, <laughs> not even a word, far too fast than we should listen. We should be faster to listen, quick to listen, and slow to speak. And that's the next step here, slow to speak, slow to begin speaking, not, not speaking slowly. Slow to begin speaking, weighing everything up, thinking about something before we say something. Obviously, this was a problem in James' day, and that's why he's addressing this. He talks about it in James 1.26. He talks about it again in James chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, and then again in chapter 4. And before we're done with the book of James, we'll be delving here again with the idea, with the issue of, what the, of, the, of the, the potential of the tongue. We'll talk about that. So you know, here we're encouraged to, to be slow to speak. In other words, don't be so quick to blame God for the temptation or trial that you're going through. Or don't be so quick to justify your sin or even to voice your doubt regarding the promises of God. Remember, the context here is temptation and sin. 
Yes, there is uh, good admonition here uh, with regard to how we relate to one another, husbands and wives, uh, parents and children, work colleagues. We should always be swift to hear and slow to speak, slow to wrath. But here, the context is sin, temptation and sin and receiving the gift of God, which is a new life. So don't be so quick to justify your sin or to blame God for the temptation or trial that you're going through. I love this statement in Christ Object Lessons, page 147. Ellen White says, Take the word of Christ as your assurance. Has he not invited you to come unto him? Never allow yourself to talk in hopeless, discouraged way. If you do, you lose much. By looking at appearances and complaining when difficulties and pressure come, you give evidence of a sickly, enfeebled faith. And then she says this, talk and act as if your faith was invincible. The Lord is rich in resources. He owns the world. Look heavenward in faith. Look to him who has light, power, and efficiency. Sounds, some people, when they read this statement, say, well, that sounds a little hypocritical. Talk and act as if my faith is invincible. If I don't feel like my faith is invincible, why should I talk that way? Why should I act as if it is? Because our words and our actions have a direct effect on what we think. And what we think has a direct effect on what we say and what we do. It works both ways. So here she's encouraging us to talk and act as if our faith was invincible. By God's grace, we can do it. Yes, we can overcome by, by the, through the strength of Jesus. Yes, the Holy Spirit is working and he will help me and give me victory. Talk and act as if your faith is invincible. And then the, the third admonition here in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 slow to wrath. Someone has Colossians 4 verse 6 for us. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6. Okay, right down here. We'll get to you in just a moment. Just a couple of other points of admonition from the, 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 the wise man. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 18. He says, a wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. And then Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes us down a city. God is commending the person who has better control over their lips, their mouth, and their temper, commending that person more than someone who can conquer a city. You can conquer your tongue, you're doing a good thing. Christian should be able to restrain his temper. Some people need glue stick, not chapstick, right? Colossians 4, verse 6, we have some great admonition here. Thank you for reading that for us. So we're admon admonished to speak words of encouragement, of faith and, and hope to others. Jesus, Jesus was said to speak words of grace. You can read that in Luke chapter 4, verse 22, in his own, own hometown in the church, in the, church, in the synagogue. Words we know help or words harm. And by God's grace, we'll be sharing words that help. Those who fulfill God's will in their lives, I'm reading a statement from the lesson. Those who fulfill God's will in their lives will be known for their eagerness to grow in their understanding of truth, for their self-control in not prematurely urging it upon others, and for their winsomeness in studying with those who disagree. It's an interesting concept, uh, to, it's an interesting way to look at these, these little admonitions in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Being slow to speak, swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. It, these principles should be in, and could be and ought to be used in our witnessing experience with others. Interesting. Well, we come to Thursday's lesson. 
Saved by receiving. Saved by receiving. Let's take a look at verse 21 as we close this week's lesson. James chapter 1, verse 21. He closes the thought by saying, Therefore, that word therefore is predicated on what came before. So based on those things that came before, based on the fact that we are tempted from within and enticed, tempted on the, uh, uh, based on the fact that we can be victorious over temptation, that God doesn't change, he sends gifts, based on the fact that we are to be slow, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to do what, friends? Save your souls. God's word is sufficient and able to save us and to bring us to heaven ultimately. That's a wonderful thing to consider. The verse concludes all that has been written thus far about faith and salvation. It's an appeal to put away all impurity and separate ourselves from wickedness. Now that word put, put away uh, could probably be translated strip off. And it's used seven of the nine times in the New Testament detaching oneself from evil habits. So strip off. It's in Romans 13, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, Hebrews 12, 1 Peter 2. God wants to give us, in exchange for our filthy garments, he wants to give us a clean white raiment, which represents a beautiful character, made so by the work of the Holy Spirit in the life. That's what God wants to give each one of us. You know, you've probably seen those pictures like I've seen them. You've got a gentleman, his head's down and he's wearing, looks like a, a gray or dark uh, garment. And Jesus is standing behind him. I think it's, yeah, Jesus is standing behind him with a white garment about to put it on top of that dirty garment. That probably doesn't properly represent what takes place uh, in the Christian experience. And I want to take you to a chapter and a verse here that uh, talks about this. Does God cover our filthy garments with his pure spotless character? You know the answer already. We've already, we've already been told. What are we to do? Strip off. Strip off the works of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3 and verses 3 and 4. Let's take a look at that here. Zechariah chapter 3. Verses 3 and 4. Notice this, the experience of Joshua, the high priest. And, and, and in this experience, we see what God wants to do for his people, those that come to him in penitence and faith. Notice, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. It says, Now Joshua was clothed with a filthy garment. Now if you read this, it's a fascinating story. The devil is there accusing Joshua but we're looking at verses 3 and 4. Now, Joshua was clothed with what type of garments? Filthy garments. And was standing before the angel. Verse 4. Then he answered and spake to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will do what? Clothe you with rich robes. So the experience of Joshua the high priest in this little story in Zechariah 3 personifies the experience that God wants to give each of his people. Let me take your sin. Let me remove it from you. Strip, just let me take it off. And let me then clothe you with my 
robe of righteousness. What a wonderful God we serve, don't we? It's a wonderful promise. God then doesn't look at me and my sin. He sees now the beauty of Christ's character clothing me. The devil doesn't want us to know this truth. He doesn't want us to understand how rich and how wonderful these promises are. This clean robe is offered to those, in essence, who completely surrender to Jesus Christ, who choose to die daily to their old ways and allow God each day to create his image in them. It is then that the righteousness of Christ covers us. The righteousness of Christ is not given to cover unconfessed sin or unknown or or, or duties that we don't do. The righteousness of Christ is given to us when we hand over to God our sin. And he clothes us with his robe of righteousness. It's a wonderful thing that God has done. Amen? Amen. Powerful stuff. And and what James has written here has uh, been written for our encouragement, has been written here for us to gain hope and strength from. When we receive the word of God, it's by receiving the word of God that we can be saved. When you uh, receive a gift, you just ask the person, just set it on that table right there. What do you do? You reach out your arms and you take it and it becomes entirely yours. And that's what God is inviting us to do with his word, with his robe of righteousness, to reach out and to receive it and make it entirely ours. God has done everything. He's done everything possible to remove sin and guilt from our lives. And the most powerful tool, the most powerful tool he's given us is his word, which when we hide in our hearts, will lead us to victory. What do you say? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.